0: It's crazy. You pay $8 million for a vendor that checks the phone GPS.
1: I'll do that. Would smart ever do B2B? Well, it sounds like you tried to with geolocation.
0: Well, we didn't seriously try. We called a few people and said, would you be interested? And they said, yeah. And we sort of talked about it. And it just sort of never got anywhere.
2: The Business of Betting podcast is presented by Optimove, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Since 2012, Optimove has served iGaming operators from startups to industry leaders. Today, four out of the top five U.S. operators personalize player experiences with Optimove. iGaming operators know their growth journey begins and continues with Optimove, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Visit Optimove at ICE and mention you listened to this episode to receive an Amazon gift card.
0: Hello, everybody. I am Jason Trost, the host of Business of Betting Podcast. Today, I'm joined with Brad Allen, a repeat guest. He's going to bring his A-game. He's going to up his level from before, which is already fantastic. But he's now also a professional podcast host, hosting Zero Latency. It's a great podcast. If you don't know, you should check it out. We're actually going to cross-post this on his podcast feed as well as my podcast feed. So definitely check that out. The other episodes, I was listening to them. They're great. He's shooting for, I think, a 20-minute Slot, so it's kind of like a short hit to the day, Brad. Well, first of all, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: Why don't you uh introduce your podcast to all of our listeners?
1: Yeah, it's meant to be 20 minutes long because that's honestly the, the main feedback I get is that people like how short it is like that. Nobody ever says the content's good, they just go, That was that was quick, that was good. Uh, yeah, it's just meant to be a bit of an accompaniment to the EKG line newsletter. It's just highlighting some of the research we do at Islas and then talk to interesting people like you today. Oh, we had Tom Waterhouse last week, Joe Asher before. So, yeah, just interesting yeah. people from the industry as well.
0: I listened to those. Those are both great episodes.
1: Before we get into the podcasting,
0: how's your new job? Not that new anymore. Being okay, newish. Yeah,
1: over a year. No new, new
0: job smell anymore?
1: No new job smell. It's not that dissimilar to journalism. Like you're still analyzing the industry you know still talking to people i'm still writing in a newsletter as well as reports so it's a little bit harder to instead of asking questions to people all the time i have to form original thoughts which takes (laughs) more effort i think or is harder Mm -hmm. for me at least but i'm getting there
0: i can never pronounce the name i'm sure i'm not alone which i appreciate you calling it ekg but even as somebody that speaks a little bit of german and french like i look at that dutch name i'm like i'm not trying that thing i find it very you know looking at that name i'm quite intimidated
1: it's a nightmare, like explaining. I'm doing like a remote work trip at the minute, and explaining to people you work for, like Isla's and Crycheck, like <laughs> you've like, just speaking
0: cobbles <laughs> EKG, cool. And the prep call, you said you had some questions for me, so a little bit of host on host action, like we did with Jesse. So why don't you kick off by asking your favorite podcast host some of your questions that are near and dear to your heart?
1: Well, yeah, this is why I wanted to do the crossover episode because yeah. you said you said well you want to talk. So this is the quote from the Earnings and More newsletter, which says Mm. there's a pause on SmartKits' U.S. expansion plans where it launched the SBK Sportsbook in Indiana and Colorado. But the company said this was not goodbye to America. We are committed to reengaging with a better and stronger product. So pausing U.S. expansion for now. Well, yeah, what's what's the plan, essentially? Well, America is going to be pretty big. I don't
0: know if you've heard about it, but it's this kind of like little colony. I think they became independent. You know, the economy is not too bad. It's growing. A little tongue in cheek there about my, uh, my beautiful country. So what happened basically was we raised $30 million in 2021, like a lot of tech companies, when the money was good. And like a lot of good tech entrepreneurs, I spent it all. For good reason. I mean, we basically doubled our headcount. We doubled or tripled our marketing spend which is the point of raising money in the first place the big thing that we learned was that the money didn't go as far as we thought it would and also the efficacy of the stuff that we invested in didn't have the return that we wanted it to so like a lot of tech companies we got religion we you know went back to shape got you know we hit the gym again i guess if you want to use a personal fitness metaphor. We were very out of shape and overweight and we basically spent 2023 getting back in shape. And so what I think that newsletter was pointing to was just sort of a corporate belt tightening. And in the US in particular, we have never really found product market fit. You know, like a naive entrepreneur, I kind of thought we would just take our UK product and put it in the US and it would be pretty good. And that was naive and short-sighted and didn't really work. On the positive side, I would say by accident or by foresight, we made two really good decisions in the United States. One, originally when we had the money, the $30 million, we thought, hey, let's go to six, seven states. Like, you know, these things are expensive. Like our bottleneck is market access, as it's politely called, or legal, I don't know what you call it, larceny or extortion or monopolistic abuse or anti-American behavior um we basically have to pay casinos in order to offer a product in the state which is a complete and utter bullshit kind of racket but anyway that's the situation in the united states so we thought hey let's take uh you know 10 20 million and add five or six states we didn't do that and hindsight I i don't know if that was just sort of we didn't get to it or it was foresight but i'm so happy we didn't do that we just ended up going live in two states And the second thing that was good in hindsight is we never really started the marketing engine going in the United States. Like we did a few sort of like small level experiments and stuff, but we never invested you know, like I think some companies were paying $700 customer acquisition costs in the United States and and we never ended up doing that. So yeah, general corporate belt tightening. uh, We still believe in the US. We've been doing some small level experiments in the United States to try to get that product market fit going. I kind of liken it like Wendy's trying to roll out a new sandwich. You kind of have a test market and you want to you got to tweak the recipe to make sure people like the chicken sandwich. So we're still working on the recipe. And once the recipe is good, like the spicy chicken sandwich that Dave rolled out at Wendy's, we will be ready to get back into the United States. We're still live in Indiana and Colorado. So if you want to check out SBK there, you can go check it out. But I'm not happy with it yet. We're close. We're close. But it's not the best sandwich yet.
1: What sort of experiments have you been doing? Like, What have you learned? What have you tweaked?
0: Bet types was a lot, so, you know, a lot of the props and same-game parlays and stuff with American sports, that was probably the biggest thing that we were missing. The second biggest thing is sort of payment customization. I mean, a lot of the stuff is very non-sexy, but payment customization, working the bugs out of geolocation, because we have our own geolocation uh, software. You know, kind of like the fit and finish and polish for the U.S. better just, just wasn't there. I think we've largely closed that gap, but I still wouldn't say it's fucking awesome, go check it out. And that's what we're working on doing is getting it to the point where I'm like, eh, it's fucking awesome, you should check it out, and it's not there yet. Yeah, because
1: I would say the original SBK product was all about, or more about sort of sides and tokens, wasn't it? And it seemed like the US market, as you said, is player props, SGPs. So do you need to go to parties for that? Because that's not like SmartKits' traditional core competency. The data,
0: I, I think it was mainly a data problem. So we, I think we paid for some more data providers to kind of fill out, especially the props and the same game parlays and stuff. You need some special data for that, which we don't do our own data, but we do our own pricing. So uh, the pricing stuff we did have to build and the integration with extra data providers we had to build. I would say a lot of it was also the legacy of being an exchange in the sense that you know, exchange betters don't bet on all this weird shit, and so I also underestimated how much sort of a sportsbook customer wants to bet on esoteric markets that just wasn't our focus for the first ten years of the company.
1: It sounds like you're still committed to the market long term.
0: Oh yeah, you- no, no. I was listening to God. What? I was listening to your predictions episode, and you guys kind of like it's FanDuel and DraftKings race, and then you know you sort of have fanatics, and I still think that like there's sub there and and I'm saying this as somebody who has a worse product than than all those guys but I still think according to what's possible I don't think Fanduel and DraftKings are great products I think there's so much more interesting stuff that you can do in the space so I don't think that like in 10 years those companies will be one and two I think that there's companies that will come out of left field that we've never even heard of or hopefully us and companies you've never heard of that will like the, sort of the TikTok you know like we all thought it was like a Facebook instagram world and then tiktok comes and starts crushing facebook and instagram so i see sports betting being more like that rather than it's going to be facebook in 10 years
1: yeah i only ask because a lot of european companies like unibet have essentially said have picked up their ball and gone home so why do you think it is still an opportunity is is it just because you think the product not where it could be why do i think we have an opportunity or why haven't we pulled out of the market yeah, but both of those questions, like, because well, a lot of companies have done that, basically said, okay, we, we can't do this our size without the advantages that you has, say.
0: I mean, the main reason is probably I'm arrogant and stubborn is this probably the business school reason. The reason I got into sports betting in the first place is a little bit circuitous, but I really liked the idea of prediction markets. So I thought the fact that you could bet on a presidential election, holy shit, this is so fucking cool, but nobody does this. There's got to be a better way to That was kind of my hook. And then my second aha for sports betting, I was like, and I used to be a stock trader, people pay these odds to to bet. You know, people pay 5%, 10% margin. And now 10% margin is starting to get on the cheaper side. You know, margins in these uh, esoteric bets are, I don't know, 30, 40, 50%. And, you know, from my naive techie trading perspective, I was like, who the fuck pays these bid offer spreads? And it turns out pretty much everybody. And so the other thing that kind of keeps me in the fight is that, to me sports betting is a giant like usury is too strong of a word but pretty much anytime somebody places a bet they're getting ripped off almost almost certainly and by ripped off i mean they're paying a transaction fee of 10 percent plus you know like think about the things that you do in your life that where you're paying a transaction fee that high the national realtor board the realtors of america just lost a case or something like you have to pay six percent transaction fee to realtors That doesn't include the tax or lawyers or stuff, but you pay 6% to realtors to do a house. And there's a lot of smart people out there. Like, it's crazy to pay 6% to do a house. And obviously there's way more involved in buying and selling a house than a sports bet. Now you take a sports bet, which is basically a database transaction. You know, you have computers talking to each other. You change a number in database here and change the number of database here. And people are paying 10%. That's the core reason, like, I'm still in the fight because all of these guys, you know, you name it, all the people that you were talking about like who are winning, they're all ripping people off. And my
1: perspective is, fuck that. Is it tricky though, as you said, like SGP margins can be 30% hold, something like that. If you're trying to do that yourself, and I think part of the reason those margins exist because there's so much pricing uncertainty, like it's quite hard to, you know, I think that's part of the reason they would say we can just tack on some of the margin because we don't know. So let's just make it Is that what their 1 billion billion billion,
0: revenue a year says, that they're not making enough money on these Obviously, that's,
1: you know, also the more legs you add, you know, if if you add 4% times 5, you get up to whatever it is, 50%. So that's that's another part of it. But some of it is protection, I think, as well. I think you're being charitable. I mean, there totally is. There's a lot of
0: things in sports betting that make it actually hard to make prices. So there's a concept in trading called information asymmetry, another concept called adverse selection. And basically these concepts are very real. You can lose a lot of money placing bets on sports, even if you have good data and all that kind of stuff for all kinds of reasons. But, you know, it's basically as you get under 4%, sports betting gets really hard. You know, there's some kind of a geometric relationship between volatility and your edge. But things don't really change until you're under 4%. Anything kind of above 4%, if you do a Monte Carlo on that, you're going to make money most of the time. As you get closer and closer to zero, you're going you're gonna to swing wildly. And then as you get kind of asymptotically close to zero, you're going to make money 50,0001% of the time and lose money 49.9999% of the time. So like anything generally above 5%, unless you have really bad data, you're going to make money. You're going to make money.
1: The last thing I wanted to ask you about was geolocation. So there was an article in the FT this week looking at GeoComply and then looking at a couple of their competitors, XPoint and Radar. And you know, there's a quote in there basically saying, "GeoComply it's, it works, but it's damn expensive, something like that. And as far as I know, SmartKits was one of the only companies just to go, all right, let's not pay this. Let's just do it ourselves. So how easy was that? And why aren't more people doing it? Why are they paying multi-million dollars a year in geolocation fees
0: it's a good question and i think this question kind of opens the door into why i think there's so much underdevelopment in sports betting but the the quick answer was it was easy we did it i want to say with like two or three people we got regulated with two or three people like it doesn't require a giant effort i heard some explanation from one of the big bookmakers i won't say which one it was but we were talking to one of the bookmakers about selling them our solution And they said something about they wanted to use a third-party geolocation so that they wouldn't have liability for somebody betting in the wrong jurisdiction, which I can't imagine is a giant risk. But the main reason that most operators don't do it, at least from where I'm sitting, is just they're not very strong technical companies. I mean, these like what they are good at, they're good at brand, they're good at marketing, they're good at acquisition, they're good at bonusing, but their technology... And innovation from a technology perspective is not their strong suit. And I think people just sort of take the easy way out and pay the geo-comply tax. And it was easy. And I think there's also something to like, there was sort of the rush of 2018, 1920, and geo-comply, like take your hat off to them, right place, right time, right product. Like geo-comply, the rumored to make, I don't know, 80, 100 million EBITDA a year or something that they're absolutely crushing it. For sure, they're overcharging everybody, like for sure, for what's essentially using your phone's GPS. It's it's really amazing that they can make millions and millions of dollars from checking the phone's GPS. I mean, there's a little bit more to it, but not really. I think it's a, I think it's a good uh, insight into the industry, and, and it's so backwards. So yeah, I think a, people shouldn't use.
1: I mean, maybe XPoint's a solution, but I don't know. Probably, what do you think? I think there's probably an element of you don't get fired for buying IBM Right. Like that quote is in the FT is the damn thing works, but it's expensive. And I think that's probably the point. Like it's right, tick that box, that's sorted. We don't we don't have to worry about that if we just do it with geo compliant. Um, but I was talking to another
0: know, operator and they will go nameless and they were saying that if you look at the marginal cost of betting, so you have to pay your federal excise tax, which I think is twenty five basis points per stake for every bet. And then you have your I'm talking about like the fees per bet, and then you have your ref share for some data providers, and then you have your geolocation checks that are done. And I think the geolocation checks for certain jurisdictions at certain times are, is not insignificant, especially if you're by a border, the thing like phones home all the time. I think it's quite expensive. And I think the geo-comply expense is a giant part of the cogs of these big companies. So I don't think it's insignificant. I think I did the back of the envelope that I think like FanDuel DraftKings, and I was just sort of like finger in the air guessing, You know, like if you think that GeoComply makes 100 million EBITDA, I have no idea what the revenue is, and like FanDuel's 30% of the market, like FanDuel's like paying $50 million a year for GeoComply to check the GPS of somebody's phone. Even if you're FanDuel, 50 million here and 50 million there adds up to real money at some point.
1: I wonder. (laughs) Again, this FT article says Bet MGM spent eight million on it. I'm told that's not true, so I I don't know. Probably tens of millions for uh, for for the market leaders. You would have thought. Yeah, like let's say it's not true, but kind of
0: true. I mean, uh, MGM's around seven, eight percent of the market. Is that right? If you if you ballpark GeoComplies revenue at 100 million, you know, and Bet MGM's eight percent, it's going to be around that. And and you think it's like it's crazy. You pay eight million dollars for a vendor that checks the phone GPS. I'll do that.
1: Would smart ever do B2B? Well, it sounds like you tried to with geolocation.
0: Well, we didn't seriously try. We called a few people and said, would you be interested? And they said, yeah. And we sort of talked about it and it just sort of never got anywhere. I mean, part of my problem is that like my heart's never been in B2B. It's just, I find it very uninteresting, even though I think it would be, I think it would be good for our business, to kind of diversify the revenue. And, you know, we built this technology that obviously is worth something that, other operators could use. So we've played with the idea. If you want to, like, if you're listening out there and you're a small operator and want to give it a try, reach out to me and we can talk about doing something like that. But it's not something that, you know, my heart is in the fight on, on the pricing and, and product side. So that's kind of, you You only have so many um, calories in the day to spend on your effort. And that's kind of where we, we put our effort in trying to compete in the product side.
1: Yeah, it does sound like these smaller operators are looking at alternatives because they they can't afford it so you know people like yeah. radar so
0: well i mean just to finish off this story i think when we first started we actually contacted GeoComply just because we never had any experience with this kind of stuff because you don't have to do this stuff in europe and the uk and i think they sort of like estimated the first year billing and i think it was like half a million dollars which you know is cheap compared to like what that mgm might have to pay or something like that but as a small startup I was like, you want half a million dollars for this? Like, I'm not fucking paying that. So that's actually why we ended up billing it because I saw that bill. You know, if they were cheap, if they're like, let's say it was like 5k a year, I probably would have just used GeoComply because you're like, ah, just one less thing to build. And I don't really want to be in the business of checking, you know, whatever, all this compliance stuff, but we just ended up doing it. So what, what's, your, what's your current play on the state of the industry? Just kind of stasis and like ESPN bet might play and Fanatics might play, but it's kind of like business as usual? Or do you think something will shake it up?
1: What i have been interested by is some of the numbers, you might, you might have seen them yourself because it's your whole area, that, that sport trade is doing. They, you know, they publish some of the bets that are being struck and some of the liquidity. And, you know, they're doing like 38K bets on college basketball totals, which, you know, if they can... Like If they can do that regularly, if they can do that consistently and they can do it for everyone, uh, that's a little bit of a game changer because I'm sure you could go get bet like $200 on the same thing at Pinnacle or, you know, Cridswell who, who always held up as sort of the, you know, places to get money down or even Circa. So I think that's quite, quite interesting. I, I meant to ask you, have you moved to the States or are you still based in the UK? I'm based in the UK. I've been in South America for about three months. So no move, no move to America yet.
0: For work or for pleasure?
1: I've been working. Yeah? How is Latam? Good. I'm in Lima currently. It's like sunny every day. There's a beach to surf at. It's food's good. So yeah, it's better than England in January, which is <laughs> terrible. It's a pretty low bar. What's your Spanish level at? It's good enough. Well, I'm really good at ordering food and drinks and coffee now. I've nailed that transactional stuff. But <laughs> still, still when like, actual Spanish people talk, I remember I'm mm-hmm. awful at it. <laughs> so
0: the reason I was asking where you are is I thought maybe you're in the U.S. and you had a ability to test these products because, you know, it's kind of tough to test these things remotely. So, like, because of that, I'm not in New Jersey. I, I don't get a chance to test sport trade unless uh, I'm at the SBC conference or something like that. But what's your, like, It it is probably interesting if they're able to take big bets. Have you noticed a lot of volume increasing and people moving to that? Or is it still Only pretty niche. fringe and, and niche?
1: Only anecdotally, obviously... These are the numbers they share themselves to sort of highlight what they're they're betting on, and it's hard in New Jersey because they don't sort of still, don't, still don't publish by operator; Do they, they publish it by license. So yeah, it's it's tough to know for sure. When we tested the product, I think we tested it against the other exchanges in the US at that time, like Mojo. We tested, which has ceased to exist or has been bought by Sliff now, and the other one, Profit, and Sport Trade was the best of the bunch. Um, I think but quite a clear margin. So I think it's a, a decent user experience. Yeah, and
0: I probably should know better, but my knowledge of ESPN Bet is basically Penn is operating it with the ESPN name, right? It's not ESPN people running it. Is that the right setup? Is that the right way to
1: think yeah. about it? They basically reskinned skinned Barstool Sportsbook, which is was a, a Pen product, Pen platform, Pen front end, everything like that. When they relaunched the ESPN Bet, they did just re-skin it, you know, rebrand it. And relaunched it, which is, we've got a note coming out this week, basically five questions we'd have for these companies at earnings calls. And the question we had for Penn was, was that the right decision? Well, you know, ESPN bet was top of the app download charts. They'd probably had a couple of million downloads or something. And but the product, when we tested it was seventh best in the market, maybe like not that good. The SG, SGP engine wasn't as good as the others. There was like limited features in terms of visualizations, all that kind of thing. It was just kind of average. And our question was, was that the right decision or should you have waited eight months or whatever, just keep it as Barcelona, take a 2% share, but then build the product all that time. Because they do have obviously a lot of engineers that are going to have a big budget to develop it. They will almost certainly improve it. Penn keeps saying how integrated they are with ESPN. You know that everyone on the ESPN side, the content side, they're working hard, they're keen to market it, which they have to say that. And that's going to be that's going to be an important question, how how involved they are, do they care, or do they just want their 200 million a year, or whatever they get. But yeah, they made this massive, they got these 2 million downloads, but the product's not that good. So what's retention going to be like is, is obviously the, the big, big question, especially when they, they've already cut their sign-up bonus, I think from 200 to 100. So... Now, I think we're going to start to see in the, in the months ahead, do people actually stick around when they're not getting free money on a sort of average product?
0: From my perspective, they clearly should have waited because that's one of the things we did with our 2021 money is that we, it's really easy to go acquire people. Funnily enough, people like free money. So if you pay people to do something, they will do it. So we, we had some pretty really frothy bonuses. We had tens of thousands sign up, but the real Rubber meaning the road is like, do they stay or, or not stay? And I think it was on one of your podcasts, the podcast, I was talking about the launch of ESPN Bet. I don't know if you or your guests said that if the experience is good enough to kind of keep them, oh, the first impression matter. And I totally agree. Like people are only going to try the ESPN Bet once, probably, unless somebody comes back and like, dude, you got to try it. Unless they have somebody saying, dude, you got to try this app, like those people won't come back. So it's probably too early for a boring, not that interesting app, but we'll see. My perspective the, is ESPN just wants the 200 million. I don't think they they really yeah. want to do sports betting.
1: Yeah, Penn knows that. Like they keep saying, and it's called like, oh, these guys are bought in. Like they were <laughs> so excited to market this. Uh, which is when you think about it, like they're not that, bought in, they're an affiliate. It's the ESPN yeah. affiliate. <laughs> if you're an ESPN personality, are you really thrilled to be doing some betting ads? Surely not. What's interesting, Rush Street Interactive had a had a call this week it might be in the needham conference and their CEO, richard schwartz talked about the impact of espn and he said we've not seen any yet on any of our player values or any yeah. of our signups but he said we think that they are going to grow the market which is good for us because once someone signed up to espn who might not have signed up to a betting app, otherwise they might then try other betting apps they the marijuana
0: of uh, sports betting is what you're saying
1: maybe but Again, I'm, I'm skeptical of that personally. Like how many people are actually signing up and then going from there to Bed Rivers? So I find that a little bit hard to believe personally.
0: On one of your episodes, you were talking about Rush Street is a good acquisition candidate. I didn't understand the logic of that. Was it just because they have good casino content and it would be a good add-on? Or like, what was the what was the thesis around that?
1: I think it's just that they've been rumored to be like everyone. I think a lot of people have looked at them and kicked the tires. Well, no, and I think there's a general expectation that M&A will pick up in 2024. I think a lot of you speak to bankers and the like, and they, they expect that. And then yeah. obviously the DraftKings, Cumberland Nugget deal, although I think it may have been expensive and paid in stock. And I think that's generally considered a success for DraftKings in terms of their online casino market share and product. And Rushry could feasibly be, be a kind of similar deal for for one of the big players. Yeah, fantastic. What do you want to be when you grow up, Brad? What do I want to be when I grow up? I don't know. I like my job, which shall I guess makes me somewhat... I don't know. I like, yeah, I spend my time thinking about gambling anyway, so uh, it's nice that someone... <laughs> so you're saying you've peaked? Yeah, I don't know. If you, what?
0: you want to be alive
1: when you grow up? It's, it's a different problem, isn't it? What next if you already sort of like what you do? <laughs>
0: yeah. Anyway... Thank you very much for stopping by. I like the host on host action. Good luck with zero latency. Everybody should check it out. Brad does a really nice job with interesting guests. So highly recommend that. And thanks everybody for listening and see you again next week.
2: The Business of Betting podcast is presented by Optimove, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Since 2012, Optimove has served iGaming operators from startups to industry leaders. Today four out of the top 5 US operators personalize player experiences with Optimo. iGaming operators know their growth journey begins and continues with Optimove, the number 1 CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Visit Optimo at ICE and mention you listen to this episode to receive an Amazon gift card.